Well, welcome to our third episode of the Future Characteristics of the Church. Um, I'm Jesse Crickshank. I'm here with my co-host, Jeff Christofferson, and we are going to have fun today. I don't know if we're going to do anything productive, learn anything, but we are going to have fun, and um, I'm excited about that. So this uh, episode is brought to you between the Sen Institute, the Movement Leaders Collective, Forge, and our guests today are Hugh Halter and Brad Briscoe. And we are gonna talk about being co-vocational, bivocational, what that means, how we do that, and why that is critical for where we're going as the church and as the body of Christ. So Jeff, why don't you tell us a little more about what we're talking about today? Yeah, thank you so much. And uh, as we began to list out these six, what we're gonna do, these six different programs on, each one of them we thought, was absolutely significant and um, imperative to get right if we we're ever going to see a future movement in North America. And, uh, and so today's subject of co-vocationalism um, really just helps us understand that we need, uh, we need to be able to somehow actually believe as in pastoral, as in, as in live our faith, that the priesthood of all believers is actually a thing. And, uh, and that we actually began to do that. And so just like when we look through history and we look through the first and second great awakenings, like we see movements going around, around the world right now, they're not uh, a professional movement. It's they're, they're, they're co-vocational teams that are, are actually involved in them. And so um, this is really significant. We, I think we've got two leading voices in North America on this subject and looking forward to uh, exploring this together. Yeah, well, let me introduce our guests. Um, so we've got Brad Briscoe, who comes from the epicenter of sports championships in Tampa Bay, also known as the Dolphin Whisperer, but he works for uh, the Send Institute. He's part of Forge Tribe and has been writing and telling us about this and being a prophet and a champion for this for a very long time. So welcome, Brad. Glad to have you here. It's good to Thanks, see Jesse. you. And then our other um, co-host here is Hugh Halter, who's calling in from Alton, Illinois, and Hugh lives this, right? So you have ministries and, and buildings and businesses, and you coach people and you train people, and you are an incubation center for this. So I want to start with you, and you also, you're, you're my favorite hat aficionado, but I, I can't pull them off like you do. <laughs> but I want to start with you. Why, why have you given your life to this? Why? instead of being like an embedded change agent in the church for this, like, like the role that Brad kind of takes, you are doing it there in Alton, Illinois, previously in Denver, Colorado. Yeah. Why give your life to this? Well, it wasn't a choice for sure. Back when we planted our first church, I think I was thinking more traditional church planting and that this thing would grow. Right. And then kind of cover our family's finances. But we had a, we had a pesky little medical issue with my son, uh, really severe epilepsy that um, sort of, it cost so much money. We, uh, we had, I had to go back to a house painting trade. And so it was not by choice. Um, I actually had to pull out of seminary at the same time financially. And so um, that was kind of the beginnings of me learning how to just lead people in the neighborhood without it being attached to money. And then when we moved to Denver, did uh the tangible kingdom story. We didn't write a lot about the financial part of that, but uh, as we were kind of 
um, trying to act more like a, a missions movement. We actually buy a lot of as a missions community, mm-hmm. um, you know, very, very minimal church structures, if, if you will. Um, we didn't talk about it, but that was essentially a volunteer movement. Um, and that was a network of missionary communities. Um, there was a little exchange of money, but not much. We let our communities give money out, um, what, whatever they wanted to. Um, some consolidation of funds for, we called it the kitty, which was more for, you know, very basic congregational stuff. But um, so, you know, even that was kind of um, still related to just needing to pay the bills and knowing that we cannot be a burden on the congregational movement at the time. So we did about 15 years of that story. And then um, this Alton story is a little bit different because it's it's not just a bivocational or a co-vocational where you're just trying to make income somewhere so that you can do traditional church ministries. Um, and I know Brad will do a good job kind of delineating between that, but this became more of an actual marketplace venture where we said, you know, it's a, it's a very struggling town. So we thought the best thing we could do, the best gospel or good news we could do was to do something that created jobs and brought people together socially. And so uh, we took an old federal post office that was boarded up and turned it into what we would call the living room for our town. And we, we do incubate other businesses out of uh, who we are and uh, kind of our nonprofit is committed to just create good works um, and a good work can be a business or it can be a missional community um, but it's all designed to build what we would call kind of building kingdom ecosystem so it's actually intentional work hmm. where our missionaries are funded through the works uh, through the businesses and again there's no exchange of money for the pastoral work that goes on or the apostolic work or the teaching work, what we call the APES ministries, all of those uh, ministries are done for free for the, for the people that God, you know, puts in our, our midst. So, um, so yeah, a little bit different story, but it's been 30 years of kind of feeling called full-time to the church, but never making a full-time living off of it. And uh, I'm very thankful. Like it's been a wild ride. We've been broke a lot, um, but it's always, you know, kind of, pushes us to innovate and I'm very thankful for the story we've gotten to live to this point. So, and Hugh, you've seen more than your share of God stories too, haven't you? And just in the midst of living that kind of life. So we're really grateful for, for you coming and being a part of this. Um, uh, my, my role is similar. My first church I planted, I worked at a furniture store to pay the bills to do it. And I was thinking a very traditional church that I was going to be starting and I went at it in the only way that I knew how. And um, um, now I'm co-vocationally leading a church on an APES team. Everyone's co-vocational and it's incredible this. And, and uh, when about, I don't know, is it five years ago, Brad, we um, uh, began to dream about how do we put this emphasis into the SEND network? And I remember uh, calling Brad up and saying, would you consider um, leaving your work that you were doing and joining and, and helping us create a new imagination in the North American Mission Board, the SEND Network, create a new imagination for bivocational church planning. But we knew that was the wrong word. And um, and and we, we struggled and struggled and struggled. I remember emails and texts and phone calls going back and forth. We've got to come up with a different a different label. So what was the label we came up with? Well, co-vocational, but wh- why, why is that significant, Brad? Yeah. So I remember, yeah, I think it was close to five years now. I remember getting that phone call from you and saying, Hey, we kind of created a new role at the, at the SIN network. 
that we're just calling director of bivocational church planning. And we knew, you know, when I first stepped into that role, I, I just felt like one of the things that we needed to do was change what I would call the biased narrative around bivocationalism. And what I mean by that is that when you ask people what comes to mind when they hear the word bivocational, uh, 99% of the time, it's something negative. It's like, mm. you know, it's a part-time person. It's a, someone that does, you know, they wonder when are you going to go to a church big enough to f- pay you a full-time salary or when's your church going to grow big enough to pay you a full-time salary. It's just usually kind of this bias, kind of negative bias narrative. So I just knew that within the SIN network and, and in other tribes and denominations, I just want to do everything we possibly could to try to change that bias narrative. Part of that was talking about all the benefits of being bivocational. And I think there's numerous wonderful benefits. It's also, uh, it was telling some of the stories really champion the, the bivocational planters and pastors that are out there. But then the third thing that we talked about was in a sense, kind of to change the language. So like you said, Jeff, we kind of started playing around with lots of different words and this word co-vocational came up. And I really think it's, I think it's really helpful. Here's the way I'll usually frame why I, I think we need more than one word to describe this different way of thinking about church planting. So uh, first off, when you think of bivocational, a lot of times I'll, I'll, I'll ask people to consider the word bifurcate. And to bifurcate means taking one thing and dividing it into two parts. And unfortunately, I think that happens a lot of times with church leaders as they compartmentalize or bifurcate their work in the marketplace and mission and ministry. And I just don't think that's biblical. So think of the word co-vocational, co, C-O, comes from the Latin prefix com, C-O-M, which means to have in common. So I still use both bivocational and co-vocational, but for me, the little nuance, uh, here's my nuance, is I'll say a bivocational church planter is someone that has a part-time job in the marketplace that they see as temporary. So their hope or their dream or aspiration is that the church eventually grows to the point to where they can leave their part-time job and focus full-time on the church. Where a co-vocational church planter is someone that has a primary calling in the marketplace that they never intend to leave. In other words, they know God's called and wired them to be an architect or a school teacher or an engineer or a web designer, whatever it might be. But at the same time, they feel like God's calling them to start something. So my hope is that when we really talk about all the benefits of being bivocational and we champion bivocational planters themselves so they don't feel like like second-class church planters, that we'll actually have more and more bivocational planters become co-vocational planters. So in other words, even when they could leave their part-time job in the marketplace and focus full-time on the church, they don't. They decide to stay because they just realize there's too many missiological benefits and financial benefits. So, And then the only other little thing I would add is and to go back to Hugh's story, for me, there's, there's really three streams. There's this bivocational, and we've got to help people kind of reimagine that. There's co-vocational, where we have uh, tens of thousands of leaders in our churches that are called into the marketplace, but we need to help them rethink their vocation and then rethink church planting. And then there's this third stream that we call kingdom ventures or social entrepreneurism. But there are people like Hugh that are starting businesses and they're planting other micro businesses, but they're planting churches out of their work um, in those kingdom ventures. And, and all of that, I just think, is not only really exciting, but I just think in an increasing missionary context, it's just absolutely crucial that we think differently along those kind of those three streams of church planting. That's great. Thanks, Brad. So good. So in, in my denomination, in, in Foursquare, like 85% of our pastors are bivocational. Now, they don't necessarily identify the difference between co-vocational and bivocational. 
Um, but a lot of them, it is a passion. It is a choice. Um, but, but then there's also those that feel like it is maybe a failure, maybe um, a sign that they're not a good enough leader. They're not, you know, they don't have enough woo or charismatic enough. And so the, the, the way that people feel about it runs the whole gamut. But for the pastors that are bivocational, they do have bigger teams. They do have more people on board serving with them in the most part. And so, Hugh, I'm wondering if you can maybe speak to how just that kind of an architecture, that kind of a model actually lends itself for a greater and more reproducible mission and missionary force. Yeah, and and kind of help us, help us see the value there. I think when we just say the pure bivo, that really does kind of give the, the, at least the feel that they're going to try to do traditional structures of church. So they're going to get paid to speak. People will tie, then they'll keep kind of a, a basic weekly rhythm going. Um, I think as we, you know, Jeff, you're experiencing this. Um, those of us that are, are doing more co-vocational marketplace type of work, um, you actually have to do church differently. So I tell folks, if you're going to do money differently, you have to do church differently. So, um, you know, when you start moving into Covo or marketplace, you, you actually can't continue to prop up a consumer Sunday centric. That's good structure. Um, so you have to go, look, I'm part of a team. And if they go, well, Hughes, my pastor, you got to correct them and go, no, I'm actually not uh, your pastor. I'm part of the team. And I actually suck at pastoring. I'm I'm better at this apostoliking or you know other you know stuff. So you actually have to not just restructure around a network of leaders, but you have to you actually have to train your congregation to think differently, which I find is really more the problem. You get leaders all the time that are willing to do this. It's uh, giving you know, the significant time it takes to expose to your, your congregation, look, we've been doing this wrong. You've been asking me to be something I'm not. You've been relying on us to do these things for you. And so that APES typology becomes so significant because you have to tell them, uh, we all are doing all the works of ministry together. And uh, so, yeah, I think it, it changes everything, Jesse. Um, but the structure of church has, you just can't, keep the old structure with the new forms of economy, so to speak. That's, that's so good. And, um, and just sort of tag teaming with that, that question as a missiologist, the thing that bugs me, keeps me awake at night is, I mean, there's, there's two problems that we have that seems to me we're not addressing and, um, and there any potential movement in North America. And one of them is a reproducible mission force. How do we, how do we get to that point? Because this addition narrative that we've been a part of is actually even slower addition than we used to be doing. And then increasingly a culturally credible mission force seems to be a thing of the past. And to the, the large percentage of the mission field, the mission force seems to have no cultural credibility. And so um, when you think about those two ideas, a, a reproducible mission force and a culturally credi a credible mission force, how does co-vocationalism or even that social enterprise that, that Hugh was speaking about, how, how do those two um, help? How, how do they help solve those problems? Maybe, Brad, you want to take a shot at that? Well, I, I mean, as you're framing that, the way I kind of often frame that is, and, and I know you agree with this, Jeff, because you and I have talked about this, but I think that there's two 
divides, especially in American evangelicalism, that we have to at least diminish, but probably completely blow up. And it's the clergy laity divide. And then it's the sacred secular divide. So in the clergy laity divide, you, you used the phrase earlier, we have to really recapture the priesthood of all believers that and, and that's about the clergy laity divide. We've got to like deprofessionalize mission and ministry. And I think to go back to what Hugh said, I think APES typology is is a, a great starting point of that. It's helping people realize how are they gifted. But we've got to just, we've got to blow that up. That It's just crazy that, you know, the Greek word that we translate, or the Greek word laos means all the people, or it means the people of God. And we've, we talk about, no, we use it as like laity, like people that, you know, ten yeah. percent of the the church population like does all the work, and everyone else we just want them to show up and be passive and tithe. So, clergy laity divide is an enormous barrier to activating all the people of God to engage in mission. But then, what I mean about the sacred secular divide, uh, you know, where it rears its ugly head the most is in our understanding of vocation. So, you know, where we think some vocations are sacred and other vocations are secular. Of course, that's not biblical, and it's so unhealthy and helpful for mission and ministry. So we need to help, you know, I think this whole co-vocational conversation actually needs to start a few steps back by helping people rethink vocation. So help them understand that regardless of what God's called them to do in the marketplace, they're in full-time ministry and, and that all work matters. And we need to help them see how does their work in the marketplace actually contribute to and participate in the mission of God. So that right there. So because, you know, I remember, I mean, it's a long time ago, but uh, my brother and I were in the restaurant business uh, before I ever became a believer. And when I became a Christian, I remember the only story I heard from leaders in the church was, Brad, if you're serious about ministry, you need to sell your secular business and you need to go to seminary. Right. So we just got to We just got to get past that. We need to help people rethink their vocation and see how does it fit into to God's redemptive purposes. And when you think about the, the credibility of of the clergy, uh, as people would perceive that, I mean, it, it is it's in rough shape right now. But even yeah. the latest Pew research is the credibility of um, not pro- not for profits is actually high. And so the one branch of not-for-profits that is, is low is the religious branch, but everything else seems to be. And so you just begin to think like, okay, maybe there's a different, a different future. I mean, if, if that, to have that kind of credibility, so that's really good. No doubt. Yeah. So I want to encourage our people, if you have a question, throw it in there. Um, throw it in the chat. Um, a question for Hugh or Brad, but I want to ask a provocative one because I know Uh-oh. you guys uh, can, um, can handle this. One of the things that's interesting to me about the sacred secular and the clergy laity divide is that it creates this exclusivity and this, you know, this call, this, this special kind of nature for those who are leading in ministry. And so in order to tear down those things, in order to blow them up, like we have to let go of that of that specialness. We have to let go of that exclusivity and that elitism that, that creates a divide, which means then we need to disciple everybody not to be a pastor, but to be the best teacher, the best engineer, you know, the best witness of God in their community and whatever their vocation is. So in this resistance um, that we all have to depowering ourselves, depowering the pulpit, depowering um, this I- idea of calling. I- I'm just wondering, like, what advice would you have to a church planter um, 
who who doesn't want to get sucked into that but at the same time when you're uh it, it there are difficult aspects about the job of ministering to other people that you kind of start to hoard that power you kind of start to hoard that that elitism and that exclusivity and it's a slow slide and so then it's hard to let that go so yeah so what advice would you guys have to church planter on how not to get sucked down that rabbit hole yeah the first thing i would say is just make sure you're a part of the team and i mean just you just have i mean we all you know we would all say we don't want anyone to plant a church by themselves it needs to be a part of a team but again to go back to you know we've talked about apes i think too often when a church planter hears the word team they think of ministry categories so they think oh i need a worship leader i need someone you know a teacher i need a or delegate person, a ch- <laughs> yeah exactly but I think we have to move towards thinking about APES teams. So identify how am I wired as a church planter? Am I more apostolic or prophetic? Am I a teacher? Am I a shepherd? And then find out who's missing on your team. And if you really operate, I mean, if you have a five-fold fully functioning team, uh, I think there's, a, there's a, a less of a risk to, to kind of fall into that, that trap that, that you're bringing up, Jesse. And, and I do think if we're really honest about it, I think there's a lot of church leaders, they kind of like that that you know that they kind of like being the man or the woman they you know they like being the expert and uh yeah it's i could it's really it's a it can be a very insidious um trap to fall into and then the other the only other thing i would say too is i think this whole conversation it has to happen earlier i mean we we should be having conversations about vocation in youth groups but certainly in collegiate ministry so very early on we need to help people in our churches understand that that if God's called them to be an engineer, then be the best engineer you possibly can for the glory of God. And how could you align that with God's redemptive purposes? So I just think it's a conversation that has to happen again, uh, much, much earlier than it's happening right now. That's great. We were actually in the last, last uh, time we were, Jesse and I were together, we were talking about the idea of calling and, um, and, and it was really interesting because you know, a lot of us who grew up in evangelical subculture, calling, we're called to preach as if that was a real thing. And, um, and, uh, and we're looking at, you know, the, the calling that we see in scripture, we're called the gospel, we're, we're called to serve, we're called to suffer. Um, but, but calling isn't an exclusive category. We are, we are all called as his people, not, and, and, and so we, we, we look at this and, and maybe Hugh, because I think you're, you're a great example for this. When you think about co-vocationalism, I talked earlier just when we were offline, but you making a statement about um, um, if, if we are being paid for ministry, it is uh, a misappropriation of kingdom funds, according to Ephesians 4, because our, our job is not to do ministry as leaders, it's to equip people to do ministry. And so when you think about this co-vocationalism, it, it naturally necessitates the biblical calling of equipping just by virtue of the hours that we have in the day. When you compare that to like the solo cleric full-time called um person uh what what power have you seen in that that uh that that necessity of equipping well first of all jeff i deny that i ever said that so those of you that are listening just <laughs> that. Um, no i actually believe that more than ever um but let me throw a little caveat in here i i think that clearly the scriptures or 
let's paint it this way. If let's say we went into another great depression uh, and we were severely destroyed economically in this country, would we all know that God can build, still build his church? I think we would all agree that yeah, God will still build his church. Um, would we still understand and realize that God would still ask us to do his works in the world? And I think we would all agree. Yeah. So in that sense, I say, in fact, I, when we used to train church planters, I would have a even an expo. We had one called How to Start a Church Without a Dime. And that was based on that premise is that you don't need any money to do any of the works of ministry. There still is an economy in the kingdom, though. So we can get to that later. But how we therefore use our collected money. Um, but think about it this way. It's not just like um, that we don't need money to do our roles in the church. When the church begins to change, some of those roles are not even that critical anymore. And so when we're really framing out a leadership team where everybody's, you know, working their own job, making their own income, or they're drawing income from the ecosystem that they're building, we're really talking about sustaining your life. That's really the ultimate goal. It's just, we want to be able to pay the bills and be able to have some to bless people and do things that matter. And so to me, if we just frame it in light of, well, I got to figure out some way to get paid to preach. Yes, I agree with what I told you before. I don't think you need to get paid to preach. Um, and if somebody gets you know, paid to lead worship, I know that people do that pro bono. Like I know it can be done. And there's people that counsel people for free. And there's people that do crisis management when the crap hits the fan in the house and somebody's rushed to the hospital. We can do that stuff for free. So um, I, I would just think of it more at a lifestyle level, not your roles in ministry. I, I feel like as you do church as a team, you realize that your role is not specific functions. Your role is to be like a father in the community or a big brother and in those sense, all you're trying to do is just still be there next year. And so I'll paint, you know, last year I, I painted more than I have in the past just so that I could still be a part of this community. Um, so I don't know if that helps or confuses things, but I think roles of traditional roles are going to begin to fade away. There will still be functions, um, but those uh, job descriptors, I think, are going to be radically different. That largely around presenting a Sunday Yes, yeah. So we've got some interesting questions that are that are coming in. So thanks for those. Let's keep those coming. Um, but there are questions about thinking about leadership differently. And there's a couple of them. You know, one is just about changing our understanding of leadership. If it isn't to be, you know, the the big papa on the stage telling everybody what to think and um, and and preaching. Uh, then, then how do we think about leadership differently? And let's wrap APEST in there for a second question. Like, how much do we actually need a head? How much do we actually need a primary leader in this conversation? And I just want to throw out um, one little other thing to add texture to this is if we're supposed to be a family, like, how do we live with our friends and what are the dynamics that we live, you know, are, is our relationship with our friends transactional? And if it isn't, and we serve and we lay down our life for our friends, why is that not translated into our, our missiology and our ecclesiology where we, where we share like Hugh's talking about? So, Brad, I want to throw this to you. What do you think then on how this changes the way that we think about leadership, um, headship in, in the situation of an APES model and that sort of thing? 
Well, yeah, there's several things there. First, I would say I actually think one of the benefits of bivocational or co-vocational church planting is as it relates to shared leadership or mutual leadership or roundtable leadership, whatever language you would use. JR, our friend J.R. Woodward uses the language of uh, polycentric leadership, which I think is very helpful. Um, because what it does is it it forces the issue for everybody to step up. I tell you, one of my favorite stories of a co-vocational guy, he's actually a federal agent and he works. I mean, it's just amazing. He, he works 60 or 70 hours a week. Well, whenever I asked him, what are one of the benefits of being co-vocational? One of the, the first benefits that he talked about was this idea of other people stepping up. He said, look, everybody knows I can't do it all. I mean, they know I work 60 or 70 hours a week. So they say, look, we know James can't do it all. So we have to play our part. So I think it just it just kind of forces the issue of activating all the people of God to engage in, in mission and ministry. Um, but of course, there's still leadership. But I think if you go back to the, the APEST passage, Ephesians 4, we all know uh, a component of that passage. It's an equipping passage. So in other words, if you're apostolic, you should be equipping others that are apostolic. If you're a teacher, you should be equipping others to be teachers. If you're evangelistic, you ought to be teaching others how to be evangelistic. So I do think it's leadership. I mean, there's certainly there's still leadership, but I think we, we need to reframe leadership a bit towards uh, the equipping of others. And like I said, that I think it's real clear in that passage. And of course, the passage is also clear saying that if all five of those gifts aren't being activated in exercise, it says the church will not reach maturity. It actually says the church will not experience the fullness of Christ. Well, I think part of that's tied in with the equipping passage. So, um, yeah, it, so we're not mitigating leadership. I just, we, but we, we certainly have to rethink or reframe the way we, we view leadership. That's, that's, yeah, that's, that's really good. Let's, let's lift the, the picture up just a bit and, uh, and think about, so, <laughs> Every year across North America, around 4,000 new churches start. Um, won't be that many this year. Um, there are around 3,700 that die. And, um, and so we, even though we have an enormous population increase, we're only netting 300 churches, something like that. Um, and it's been, and, you know, that's been the case for a number of years since we've measured so we're not, we're, we're gospel proximity isn't, we're not really gain, moving the needle on that at all of our denominations, evangelical denominations, networks combined. And, um, and so when we think about uh, how, how, how we're going to actually, I mean, to me, it's a no brainer that we have to shift into the, this conversation in a big way. If we're actually going to bring prox the gospel proximity answer to the, the problem that we have here. So think about denominations and networks. Um, most of them have systems designed to produce a particular kind of planter. And, um, and, and not saying that's a bad thing, we should stop doing that. But even in the, the I mean, if church planting is the R&D of denominations, um, most church planting networks and, and uh, need to somehow have their finger on this idea in a big way. So what needs to change in denominations uh, for co-vocationalism not to be the sort of stepchild, but, uh, but to be normalized and celebrated and seen as sort of the prime idea, not a, a secondary tertiary idea? Hugh, do you want to take a shot at that? Yeah. Um, 
Man, there's there's just a lot in there. I, I was actually just thinking like way back four questions ago, Jeff, you referenced the cultural issue that we have of the day, right? That our street cred is at an all-time low. Um, and I, I think if we just go, okay, we got to plant more churches than we're losing. That used to be something I used to say. And mm-hmm. now I recognize we actually, we were, and I'll just say other things, maybe someday I'll disagree with, but um, I don't know if we've been planting what the Lord would be planting. Mm-hmm. We've been planting teachers and pastors and church services. Uh, I think missiologically planting should always be new wine. Mm-hmm. And that new wine's got to be a new wine skins. And if you try to do those two things together, they just don't work, right? We're trying to preserve the old forms and now the new forms. Um, but we've got to, if we're going to plant anything, we have to plant apostolic leaders, I would say. Um, if we were ever going to fund, I think apostolic kind of contains the uh, the DNA of the equipper, uh, the mover, the new wine, Um starting from ex nihilo out of nothing type of thing. But I also think in that I would, and I have been telling a lot of denominational leaders that this is a different time when, and I would, I would say this, I think we have lost our saltiness when Jesus says, like, if you lose your saltiness, you're screwed for a while. I think we are. I don't know if Jesus Wait, quite what? said that. What translation right. is that? Yeah, that's, uh, that's Latin. That's in the passion <laughs> translation. Um <laughs> No, but like, so we reckon right now, there's a planter that's uh, coming into Alton. And from all indication, he has come out of very successful, normal church in St. Louis area. And so he believes that he can just come into this area. And he said, you know, what what would be your one recommendation? I said, I would not come in as a church planter because this is hard ground. And Jesus talked very, very spiritually about when you lose your saltiness and the ground is hard, it doesn't matter what framework you have to throw into that context. You've The work really of planting, I think, in the next 10, 20 years is going to be almost entirely about softening the soil. Cultivation. Yeah, and so we may not be able to judge anything by the old metrics. We, so it's, it's literally going to be embedding a disciple almost like you would embed a cover crop if your if your soil is turned to dirt and it can't grow anything that Jesus he he taught us at the level of disciple he never taught us at the level of a church he he said we need these types of people in the soil and they'll they'll bring some salt and they'll bring some illumination and then maybe at some point we can cast some seed but I think we have boggled this thing so bad the last 50 years. We're going to have to pay the piper, which means we need incarnational leaders that um, are willing to be anywhere people are and to be different than what they expect us to be um, before we're going to be able to like wind the old clock back. That's good. Brad, can I, can I, can you advise all other denominations other than the one you work for on, um, on what needs to happen? Yeah, I would say, you know, and you mentioned how our, you know, the SIN network and other denominations, we have some really well put together processes and systems. And, and I, you said, it doesn't mean we're throwing all that out. This really is kind of a both and. But I do think moving forward, some of the areas that we have to think differently, we have to think differently about where, where we're going to discover church planters. It's not going to be at the seminary. It's not going to be everybody that's got an MDiv, you know, whatever. Second is, I think we have to rethink assessment. 
because typically we assess, as Hugh said, for a shepherd teacher, we assess for the five-star gifted communicator. And it doesn't mean that's bad, but we've got to look for more of the prophetic, evangelistic, and apostolic leader. And then the tra- our training has to change. I would say the content of the training has to change and the way we deliver the training has to change. We can't, we can't do training, you know, three day, you know, Tuesday, Wednesdays, and Thursdays in the middle of the week. If someone's bivocational or co-vocational, I think most of it has to be online. It has to be self-led, but then the content just has to be different. It can't be, we can't just teach them how to do church better, you know, how to preach better, how to run the programs of the church, but we need to help them really think and act more like a missionary. So I think there's, yeah, there's lots of, lots of aspects of our, of our systems that we're just going to have to change. To, to I love that because as a nerd scientist, I can tell you that the way we train people promotes the clergy laity. Right. 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 And so we pull them out because that's what they did. Right. You'd send people to monasteries to learn how to read. And we have just kept that model ever since. And it makes a slow, poor learning process compared to, what they call as an in-situ learning process where you're apprenticed in the field, doing the thing, practice, screw it up, get feedback, practice again, do it a little better, screw it up some more and, and just learn while in an internship or apprenticeship, the, the learning is, it's like 80% compared to 5% growth. So I love, I love that you're bringing that because our, our methods perpetuate our models and our, right. and our methods are designed to perpetuate our models. So we have to start with different methods. So and then I would just, I'm sorry. No, go for it. Well, I was just going to say, and then I just want to emphasize again, something that Hugh said is then in our processes and systems, we have to have different metrics. We just, we, we have to measure success differently it, because right now, every way we try to measure success, it's tied into the Sunday morning worship service. How many people show up? How much money they give? You know, how, how large is our seating capacity? What are some of the metrics? Do we know the old? Well, I, yeah, I would say we have to. So I like to make a distinction between counting and measuring. So counting is quantitative and measuring is qualitative. So I still think we should count some things, but we need to count missionary behaviors and activities. If we really value people engaging their, their you know, their first, second and third places, we need to, we need to count those things. Like, how many meals do you have with lost people? How many lost people do you have in your house each week? You know, there's all kinds of wild and wonderful and beautiful things we can count. But then I think we need to measure certain things too. And this is harder. And of course, Je- Jesse knows all about this, but, but I think we can measure change both within the church and outside the church. And again, it's harder, but it's not impossible to measure, you know, actual change that takes place in the people that are part of the church. I mean, that's maturity and discipleship. But then I think we need to, highlight some markers in the community that we can measure as around crime, education, all sorts of things, housing, and, and get a baseline and then say, hey, what would we like this to look like a year from now, 18 months from now, or two years from now, and then actually measure that change and see if it, it, see if the church is making a difference. So I just think, yeah, we have to have a completely different scorecards. We had a... Uh... I might have told Brad the story, but I was out in front of our house just a few months ago and an older woman walked by and she had found out her son had passed away. And so she was just giving the normal condolences. And and then she walked a few paces, then she stopped and she said, you know, uh, our town is really lucky that your family moved here Mm -hmm. on a small scale, on a larger scale. 
uh, a family that came up that started a kingdom ecosystem in Birmingham, Taylor and Lindsay McCall. Uh, it's called Common Thread. It's an amazing network. And, you know, Taylor shares about the mayor of Birmingham actually suggesting to him that if his network moved out of Birmingham, they would have to raise taxes to cover all that those people had done. This is, you know, Tim, Tim Keller does an unbelievable um, exegesis of the word kadim, which is the word for righteous in Proverbs 11, 10, it says, where the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. So when we start thinking about metrics, I think we're literally trying to figure out, do, number one, do people like us? <laughs> That's a, that'd be a first start. Uh, do they come towards us? Would they be sad if we left? Um, and I think those things we can start to measure, or at least we hear what people are saying about us. But, you know, it's going to take a while for that to come back, I think. And, and some of those who would say, just preach the gospel, Hugh, and forget about all that other stuff. What would you say to them? Well, I'd say as long as you can afford to live and keep doing that, give it a go. I mean, I, I've learned I can't talk anybody out of uh, the paradigm that they want to live. Uh, ultimately, I think the bigger question even for this webinar is what type of life do you really want to live? Like what type of story do you want for your children? And, um, man, I, you know, it's been difficult. Would I have preferred a full paycheck at, at many times along the way? For sure. But um, the biggest thing I love about this is the story that has been for my adult daughters and my son-in-laws mm. being here together on mission and with the friends that, you know, it's not a lot, you know, um, I would say it feels like 40, I got 40 friends in this town that we all do church together and we build and uh, we incubate and we're here. We have a presence here in this town and I just love the story. So if the guy wants to get on the corner with the megahorn, which I saw just a few days ago in Portland, I guess if that's how you want your story to be, then keep her going. But I think there's, there's, I think hundreds of thousands of leaders that, are peering into these new forms and going, I think I'd prefer that to be the story. That's good. So good. We're getting some more questions in here um, about transitioning to these things that they're, you know, from where we're at, whether that is a traditional structure or a multi-site, like how do we, how, how do we change what we've been doing or how, how would you encourage someone to change what they've been doing or what they're a part of? to maybe move towards this? And and does the end result always look like house church or micro church or, or an underground movement? Like, you know, what, what do you, what do you see that the, that we need to do in order to fully or more fully embrace the co-vocational teams? And then how might that change um, what our end product is? Hey, Brad, let me say something dumb yeah. and then you come and say something smart at the end of it. Okay. Uh, at a very simplistic level, I'd say uh, any church can begin to move this way because all we're talking about is one disciple becoming a different type of a disciple. So as soon as somebody sniffs this flower and begins to live like this, you have transitional change beginning to occur in your congregation. You'll never have an entire church, even in our setting. We're never going to have a pure movement. Um, but we disciple to the level of a missionary. We don't disciple to the level of a church attender anymore. It's not even an option. Um, we disciple to a level of an entrepreneur. So always talking about, hey, what do we want to start? What, what's our town need? Um, so I think as soon as you begin that, view, view change through the lens of a disciple, not through congregational structures. And then everybody gets to move this direction. It's just, it's probably more, 
not whether you are or you aren't this, it's the level to which you're moving individual people towards this way of life. So now Brad, fix that. That's good. No, no, that's good. uh, One thing I would say, and this might be the most important thing I say (laughs) is that um, I just think when you think of bivocational and co-vocational, think of a, think of strategy, not model. So I just think, I mean, that sounds super simple, but I think it's really important because too many, uh, too, too often when we hear the word bivocational, we think small, we think house church, and it may be that, but this isn't about a model. It's about a strategy. It's about a missiological strategy and it's a financial strategy for planting a church. So for example, I know churches that run six, seven, eight hundred, and all the staff are bivocational or co-vocational. So this has nothing to do with the size of the church. So I just think strategy, not model. The other thing I would say, and as an existing congregation, I talk to pastors all the time, and and I just encourage them that if they are full time in the church, is to say, look, go get go get a part time job. I don't care if it's just one day a week. Go work eight hours a week in the marketplace. It'll give bring you such street cred or respectability inside the church, but also it'll give you respectability outside the church. So then in other words, when you are meeting new people that aren't Christians, you don't have to lead with, I'm a pastor. You can lead with whatever that part-time job is in the marketplace. Um, so, so yeah, I just think it, we just have to, um, we just, in an existing congregation, we have to take kind of these baby steps, I think, towards being bivocational or co-vocational because the, the major issue or problem is expectations of the congregation. So I think there's also, uh, you know, kind of multiple paradigm shifts that people have to experience. And most paradigm shifts don't happen overnight. So again, we have to kind of look at it as a kind of a long runway. If you're an existing congregation that's built on, you know, fully funded kind of key leader, uh, you're not going to be able to kind of flip and get people to, to, you know, step up and do their part and actually be the body of Christ. Right. If they're expecting you, you know, the last decade, you, you've been the, the key leader. So, uh, yeah, so expectations of the congregation is, is another piece of this that, that has to be managed. But one of the cool things about this is with um, a lot of authority in a co-vocational mindset, you can say, follow me as I follow Christ and do it with a straight face and, um, and not not really think, well, this isn't really true, but we've got to say it anyway. Um, because, you know, you are, you're living as a template for, for others to follow. They can reproduce your life. And, um, and one of the cool things economically, and Hugh, I mean, you're living testimony to that. The church that I lead, we don't have a building and we don't pay for a pastor. So what do we do with our money? Because people are giving. And, um, and so every one of our missional communities have a $10,000 budget and 7,500, 75% of that is to go to missional engagement and 25% of that is to go towards needs within the people of that missional community. And these guys are, are looking, you know, out thinking, how do we, how do we use God's money in our community in this way? And uh, it's beautiful to, to watch you sort of flip everything over when you, when you have the opportunity to sort of pull the expenses out that we're used to spending just about all of our kingdom funds on. Any comments awesome. on that, Hugh? Uh, you know, if the Book of Acts, let's say Book of Acts is as close to we have as a maybe a guide for church planting, you know, one of the early witnesses of the church from chapter two, three, and five is that nobody had any need that was inside that family. So, what's the word spread? Like, you got to get inside that family. Like, there's something going on there. And so, yeah, what if what if uh, most of our money could be spent? 
you know, creating things that really help people. Um, I don't know why that would ever be bad other than we're worried about how we fund our, ourselves. So that's why I do say really consider the business option, you know, so where we're not just always spending money that we make and then we just spend it that we might actually have a sustainability arm of what we do. We may not get hundred percent sustainable, but let's just say within any movement that some of our micros that we're starting actually fund themselves or partially fund then we begin to build an economy that also, you know, we have the personal funds of the individuals, but we also can build an additional economy with those funds that might provide a little bit more sustainability. And we're seeing a lot of really cool uh, pictures of that, especially during COVID. Some of these ecosystems around the country, they uh, were one part of the ecosystem might struggle. The other one's doing great and they share funds and keep the, the rest of the ship afloat, so to speak. And it's a, it's a great picture. Mm-hmm. So I have a question for for Brad, and 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 this is for anyone who's out there who is currently co-vocational or bivocational. Um, so I I was co-vocational for three years, and um, we had a family emergency. My father-in-law was in the hospital for six months, and um, it was a very difficult time. But in the in the yeah in the journey of that, both my husband and I worked through all of our our paid leave for our jobs, and we were in threat of losing our jobs. But at the same time, then the church that we were working with, that we were part of, had programs, had things it was trying to do, you know, and and needs for people. And we almost lost our role there, too, because of the tension between life and running and the in the in the 24 hour customer service arm of the church. So what would your recommendation be to people who are currently co-vocational or bivocational about how to think about their life so that it's healthy, so that they're, they don't feel like they have four jobs or three jobs and that they're always, you know, something's always getting the short end of the stick, you know, usually the family then. Um, what, how, what would you just say to somebody who's in the middle of the tension of all of that right now? Well, and Hugh, Hugh speaks really well about alignment, and and Hugh might let you do that. I, I, a couple of things I would just add is again, and I hate to sound like a broken record, but we have to go back to teams. We we you can't plant the church by yourself. It's you've got to do it with a fully functioning. And I think all of us on this call would, or webinar would argue a APES team. The second is I think we need to have serious conversations around margin within local churches. I think, you know, there's different ways we can kind of talk about balancing, you know, life and mission and ministry and all that. But I find the language of margin really helpful. I think it's really important to have like common shared language that we can use in the church. And I think margin's a good common shared language to use just about, you know, do we have space can we carve out margin? How do we create margin where we actually have space, uh, financial margin, we have relational margin, time margin. Um, so I just think we need to have those conversations and we need to do it with a team. And then kind of philosophically, then we just, again, I think we have to go back and, and, and rethink vocation and work. And, you know, it's funny, I talk to planters all the time that will tell me that they they almost feel guilty. I mean, they use this language. They say, well, I feel guilty about uh, the amount of time I spend in my job or at work that I can't spend on the church. And I just think that we, we've got to help people not think that way, that this, because they're not valuing their, their work. They don't see how, how their work fits into the broader picture of the mission of God. And then even how their work could possibly even fit into church planting. So 
Hugh, I know in your book, Bivo, you talk about leveraging. I, I, I love that you use that word. Do you remember, I remember a couple of the lines from the book where you talk about, it's actually, go ahead. I'll let, do you remember? <laughs> you probably don't remember what you wrote, right? I don't remember, remember, but I think the subtitle talks about leveraging all of life into one calling. But we, right. in that, we were talking about the, like, you have to have these five knacks to do this well. Um, and one of them is that ability to just manage different parts of your life. The, the apostolically gifted leaders that are listening will find that they, that, that comes a little bit easier. If they are, uh, they've had one job their whole life, they only think one way, it's going to be more difficult. But on a very practical deal, um, the more that you move into this type of a lifestyle, the more organized you actually have to be. Uh, when I was passing in a more traditional, I could literally just wake up and go, I think I'll head into the office and kind of see what's rolling around, you know. I didn't have to be that strategic. Uh, in this alignment, every day I'm working a to-do list, and I'm uh, every Sunday night I still plan my entire week almost by the half hour, and that's so that I can manage the business side and so I can manage the life side. The ministry, actually, I don't have to plan much of that. That kind of happens inside the business uh, just by just being with people. There might be two, you know, one to two meetings a week that you would call a ministry meeting. Might be a men's gathering. It might be a missional community in a neighborhood. Uh, Those tend to happen on an every other week basis. So, you know, one night a week, I might be out of the house. But most of the nights I'm, you know, at home. Uh, Cheryl and I keep a schedule of working out together and, so they're just basic rhythms, but I, I do tell leaders that want to live this way, you actually have to really own your own life. You can't let anybody control it anymore. Um, and if you're not totally on board with like scheduling the things that really matter, you probably are going to get very frustrated um, trying to do this. So I think it is for the apes, the apostolic prophetic evangelists, it'll be easier for them uh, to work in a team like this and, and to manage, you know, two sides of life. But literally, the ministry, I think, falls through the cracks of both of these things. If I'm at the coffee shop uh, and I'm just talking to people, sometimes I'll be there just an hour and I make two leadership touches with people that are on our leadership team about what they're doing. I might connect with a dude that literally just walked in off the streets and help him kind of manage through the day a little bit. I might actually uh, have a cup of coffee. Like just the ministry stuff falls between the cracks if you manage the business and the life side pretty well. That's, that's gold right there, Hugh. That's what that's, I said. write that down. Yeah, I yeah, know. Yeah. Fortunately, this is recorded. So uh, um, guys, we're almost out of time, but I'd like to ask one more question. Maybe you guys do give it one minute as you uh, think through this. If you, so you're thinking about someone listening to this, who is, you know, they're, they're employed. They're, they're not in ministry as we would define in, in the old paradigm there. They have a job and, or you're, you're talking to a guy who is a full-time minister uh, in, in th- what, what's one thing you would say to both of those people relating to this subject? Go ahead, Brad. Well, so somebody, well, first off, um, yeah, I mean, it's, the place where I usually start is helping them just kind of rethink the nature and essence of the church and then their place in it. So in other words, I think most people we have, you know, Jeff, you and I've talked about this before. Most people, they, when they think of the church, they think of the body of the Christ, 
they think of the church as a place where either certain things happen or they think of the church as a vendor of religious goods and services. And it kind of exists for the benefit of the membership. Instead, we need to see the church as actually a called and sent people of God or language that Hugh has used, gathered and scattered people. So we have to actually see we individually, we are a sent missionary person. So then I think the place to start then is begin to ask, where has God sent me? Where, what, what is God, where has he sent me in my neighborhood, in my workplace, and then, and then in social spaces that, you know, I have it th- throughout the week. So I think uh, the place that we have to start is we just have to start by thinking like a missionary and, mm-hmm. and begin to discover where is God at work and then ask, how does he want me to lean into that or participate in that? So mm-hmm. when we do that, even when we have a full-time calling in the marketplace, I just think things will begin to open up um, to where we can actually step into mission and ministry outside the walls of the church. Great. That's good. Thank you. I I would just say, keep your town in mind. We moved here because my wife said, why don't we move here and see if we can do something to help in this town. Mm -hmm. This morning I met with the chief of police and a business leader that uh, are both believers and had found out about what we were building in our network and they're about 10 miles away in another little town. And they just, uh, they said, Where, what should we do? I said, why don't we just start talking about how to change uh, your town and just start praying about it. But to me, it was a great picture of like literally the chief of police and the primary business leader in town. So if we were trying to figure out ministry and, you know, whatever, we literally are talking about the town. How do we help this town? If we good. keep that at the forefront, we'll, we'll intuitively make the more missionary move as Brad was talking about. Not how, how do I get a church out of this town, but how, what, what does the church of Jesus Christ need to do in this town? Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. Jesse. Yeah. So for people who want to know more, I'm going to throw things out that I know, and you guys add to it for what I'm missing. We've got Hughes book by Vo. Um, Brad, you're there with Tampa underground um, helping. They've got training resources. Forge has training resources on this. 5Q Collective has tons of resources on APEST and APEST teams. You guys are a part of that. Um, what else? Where where could someone go if they want to be apprenticed, if they want a book, if they want a training? Brad has a book called Co-Vocational. Yeah. So if they just, if you just Google co-vocational church planting, it'll take you to a landing page where you can download a book that I wrote a couple of years ago in both English and Spanish. It's a free download. He wrote, he wrote then, it in both languages. It's pretty amazing. Yes. Yes. No. <laughs> and then the other thing I would, I would suggest is if you're on Facebook, there's a Facebook group that I started about a year and a half ago. It's just co-vocational church planting. So if you search that on Facebook, trust me, it's the only thing that will come up. But what's amazing is there's over 1,200 people in this group now, over 18 months. And I would say 90% of the people in the group are bivocational or co-vocational. So it's just a great place. There's so much expertise and experience in this group. You've got a question about how to move in a certain direction or any suggestions from other people. You throw that out there on the, on the page. Somebody, multiple people actually will respond. So it's just co-vocational church planning. And if all it fails, you can go live with you, right? And be That's apprenticed. Right. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. You guys, it's been so much fun. It's been good. Um, We really appreciate you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for paying attention and listening with us. And um, we hope you've been inspired or at least entertained. Thanks so much, guys. Really, really appreciate it. Appreciate you guys.